0: This morning, we come to what commentators call the most difficult text to understand in all of Mark. So, if you happen to be visiting with us this morning, I apologize in advance as you are jumping into the deep end with us. Mark 13 has had countless pages written on it with numerous different viewpoints. And we kind of have to wonder why is that? Why is it so hard? To understand what God is saying to us in Mark 13. Why didn't God just make all of the scriptures straightforward so we don't have to wonder about anything at all? And while I don't have all the answers, what I do know is that texts like this force us to rely on God all the more. This type of text keeps us from becoming prideful and it instead promotes humility as we recognize that godly men and women can sometimes come to different conclusions on God's Word. Men and women who love God deeply, but disagree as to what's being said in certain texts. Texts like this force us to know the Scriptures better as a whole with their existence than without it. And so we thank God and we praise Him For even difficult texts like this, for as we talk about it, as we discuss it, even as we disagree about it, we come to know God's word holistically in better ways than if these didn't exist. So as we go through Mark 13 here this morning, I want you to know that I am not going to take the time to argue every single one of my points that I make, or to go down every single rabbit trail or question that you may have about this text. Rather, I am presenting to you just one view among several that I think makes the best sense of the text here this morning. So I encourage you then to examine what is said here this morning, and then in light of what's been said, study the scriptures for yourself and see if it is true. And if you come to a different conclusion, that's fine. Let's talk about the text, and let's dig into it all the more. So as we come to Mark 13 here this morning, we remember that Jesus has just finished dealing with the religious leaders in the temple. In his interactions with these religious leaders, we find that they are filled with false piety and false righteousness. Well, they appear to have this righteousness and piety. Jesus exposes them for what they truly are. They are rotten to the core. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, they are whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but completely and utterly dead on the inside. And because of their corruption, these religious leaders over the temple are coming to an end jesus has declared it so this brings us to verse 1 of chapter 13. as jesus is leaving the temple one of his disciples says teacher look what massive stones what impressive buildings the disciples draw attention to the beauty of the temple that they are leaving and specifically the stones which are indeed impressive and massive. These stones, as Josephus records for us, were about, in our measurements, 37 and a half feet in length, 12 feet in height, and 18 feet in width. These stones were incredibly heavy, and they were in architectural feat like none other. And though the rabbis of the time, had no respect for King Herod who built this temple for them, they did say this about the architecture. He who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in his life. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. Herod's temple, as recorded by historians, was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was impressive to look at, which makes what Jesus says to his disciples here all the more shocking. He says to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Jesus, in one sentence, declares the end to this temple That the religious leaders were abusing all of it is coming down all of the stones all of the buildings jesus has prophesied it now i don't think we can fully feel the weight of what jesus says here or how it would have hit his disciples the temple was at the center of the jewish way of life and now jesus has just declared to his Jewish disciples the end of it. Everything they thought they knew about their Jewish faith with the temple at the center was about to be changed radically forever. And for the rest of the walk back to the Mount of Olives as Jesus and his disciples go, there's nothing recorded that they say after this. No doubt the disciples are pondering what Jesus has just prophesied. It's hard to imagine that which is so crucial to your faith being destroyed. But when they finally get back to the Mount of Olives, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, finally ask Jesus two questions in private. And these questions are important because for the rest of the chapter, I believe Jesus to be answering these questions. So the disciples Ask him finally, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? I think these two questions provide the framework for us for what Jesus will say and answer in the rest of chapter 13. He's answering the disciples' questions about the coming destruction of this temple if this is the case, then we find in verses 5 through 13, Jesus describing the events preceding the temple's destruction, the temple which the disciples just asked about. In response to their question, Jesus tells them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, as the time approaches for the destruction of the temple, be careful and watch out. There are going to be imposters claiming to be the Messiah. There are going to be rumors of war. There are going to be earthquakes. There are going to be famines. But don't be alarmed because these things are necessary before the destruction of the temple. Jesus describes then with great details the events that signal the beginning of the end of the temple here. And as we look back on history, we find and we read that these things occur just as Jesus prophesied leading up to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. We find rumors of wars recorded. We find massive earthquakes, one recorded in A.D. 61 and another one that leveled the city of Pompeii just two years later. Severe famines are recorded between AD 41 and 54 during the reign of Claudius and it affected all of the Near East. These events signaled the beginning of the end of the temple just as Jesus prophesied. But Jesus is not done yet. No, he goes on to describe the persecutions that his own disciples will have to suffer and endure Prior to the temple's destruction. So he tells us again in verse 5 Be on guard, be alert. You will certainly suffer leading up to the destruction of the temple. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of my name and witness to them. But this is necessary because the gospel must be preached to all nations. And by all nations, I think he means all the known nations in the region, which I believe Paul to later confirm in Colossians 1, 5, and 6. So I think Jesus is saying that it is necessary that the disciples suffer to bring forth the gospel to all nations. And this will happen prior to the temple's destruction. These are the birth pains. So in these days leading up to the temple's destruction, Christ's disciples will have a very, very difficult time. But Jesus wants them to know that their suffering is not in vain, for it is bringing the gospel of salvation to all the nations surrounding them. And as an added word of hope to his disciples, Jesus also tells them this, when you are arrested and you are standing trial for me, Don't be worried or anxious in such moments, because in these incredibly dark hours, when you are testifying before those who want you dead, the Holy Spirit will be with you, and he will speak through you, and in so doing, declare the glories of the gospel. Jesus goes on to tell us other horrible things that will take place. Betrayal of family members, even to the point of death, and being hated by everyone, Because of Jesus. But he gives another word of hope to those who would endure. Yes, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The righteous will live by faith. So Jesus, in love, tells his disciples to be ready for these things before the temple's destruction. He wants them to be courageous. He wants them to be confident because their Lord has told them it would take place. And as we go forward into history, we find everything just as Jesus said here to his disciples. The disciples of Christ are indeed hated by all people. They are arrested and they're put in prison. They're beaten in the synagogues and they are put before the authorities for their faith in the risen Christ. But as we continue reading through the book of Acts, we also find that the Holy Spirit is with us the disciples through it all. The Holy Spirit speaks through them, and they do proclaim the glories of Christ when they don't know what to say. And the governors and rulers are astounded by these common men and their eloquent speech. The Holy Spirit strengthens them, and they become as bold as lions, and Jesus's word to them proves true in the darkest of their moments. Even when they don't survive, just as we find with Stephen. We find that God uses the sacrifice of his people and their suffering to spread the gospel across the nations. And so just as Jesus said it would happen, so the gospel goes forth to all the world and it begins to bear fruit, just as Paul confirms in Colossians 1, 5, and 6. So as we recap here just for a moment on what's taken place, we remember that the disciples asked two questions. When is this going to happen, Jesus? When is this temple coming down? And, and what will be the sign of its destruction? And I think Jesus has partly answered that question. He's partly answered. These are things that are leading up to its destruction. That's when it will happen. But then I think in verse 14, he answers their question more directly. And so in verses 14, 14 through 23, we find Jesus giving them the sign of the temple's destruction when it's about to happen right around the corner. And he says in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. So the disciples ask again, remember, when will this temple be destroyed, and what will the sign be? And Jesus says, when you see the temple, uh, the sign of the abomination of desolation. So here's your most direct answer, and let the reader understand. So now we all know when the temple is coming down, right? We all got to figure it out. That's that's the sign. We know. Well, I'm guessing not, okay? I'm guessing that's not what you're thinking at all. Uh, The abomination of what? The abomination of desolation? What what, what is Jesus talking about here? And while we in our culture don't have the natural context for what Jesus is talking about, the Jewish person in that day and age did. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying here. They would have been very familiar with the term the abomination of desolation. And there's at least two things they would have thought of when hearing this phrase first they would have thought of the prophecy of the abomination of desolation in daniel 9 here we find that this abomination would stop the jews from sacrificing in their temple he would destroy their temple and completely stop the jews from practicing their religion and it would be an awful time to be a jew at that moment So that's the first thing they would think of. Second, they would think of the king, the Greek king Antiochus IV. This Greek king in 168 BC invaded Jerusalem and desecrated the Jewish temple. And he did this by erecting a small altar in their temple and then he sacrificed a pig on top of it to Zeus. At this moment, he also stopped the practice of Judaism forever while he was there. And you know what the Jews called him in this event? The abomination of desolation. And they would point back to what happened in 168 BC as a fulfillment of what Daniel 9 prophesied here. So Jesus, knowing this, with all of his background, uses this term, Here, He's doing so with the knowledge of everything around the term. And so he's saying, when you see the temple being defiled just as it was before, he tells them, that's when you know the temple is coming down. That's when you know this temple will be destroyed completely and everything around it is going down. And he says, when you see this happen, sign run to the mountains and don't stop don't go back to your houses for anything if you're on your roof which was a common living space at the time flee to the mountains don't go back into your house don't go into the fields for anything this is an emergency situation much like we tell people when they're evacuating from a fire don't bring anything but yourself Jesus tells his disciples similar words. Flee, get out of there. This demands immediate flight. And Jesus continues. And for those pregnant women and those nursing mothers in that day, it's going to be bad. It's hard enough being pregnant and taking care of a newborn, but it's going to be even more difficult trying to flee in that day with those limitations. So pray, Jesus says. Pray that it won't happen in the winter. The winter would only add to the difficulty of flight as the Jordan River would rise at that time. Jesus tells us that it's going to be so bad, so bad that if God himself did not cut short the days of this tribulation coming on the temple and the city of Jerusalem, no one would be saved he does cut short the days for those whom he's chosen to save. So during this time of chaos in this context, Jesus tells us again, there will also be false messiahs, those who claim to be their savior in the midst of all this chaos. But Jesus says to them again, don't let them lead you astray. Keep fleeing to the mountains. Know that you've been warned. This will happen just as I said it would. We now come to a transitional point then in Jesus' word here. He begins to tell us in verse 24 of a separate event, something that will occur after the temple comes down. And we find the second coming of Jesus in verses 24 through 27. But in those days... After that tribulation, that is, some time later, after the destruction of the temple, just as I prophesied, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man, a title that Jesus uses for himself throughout Mark. They will see Jesus coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth. So Jesus here speaks of his return sometime after the destruction of the temple. And he will return in such a way that will be unmistakable and unmissable. His presence will be felt and known by all the world. And those who are his will be gathered to him at this time. So this certain reality gives hope to Christ's disciples. Yes, there will be absolutely dreadful days ahead of them, but there is definite hope that the resurrected Christ will return for his own. He will not abandon our souls to death, but he will raise us up with them. And so while the future may look bleak, Jesus' disciples are to know that he wins In the end, Jesus will return a conquering king. So trust him and look to him alone. We come now to the last part of chapter 13. And here, I believe that we find two pictures of what Jesus prophesied. Two pictures. I believe there's a fig tree analogy in verses 28 through 31 that is picturing everything that Jesus said about the coming destruction of the temple. And then I think there's a second picture of the master's departure and return illustrating Christ's departure and return. And I understand the text to, be, to make the most sense with this interpretation and understanding. But I encourage you here again, this morning, whether you agree or disagree with me, to again, study the text for yourself and to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. Our desire is to continue to study and to grow in our understanding. So with this understanding what Jesus is doing with these pictures, we come to the first one in verse 28. He says, When you see the buds and the sprouting of the leaves on the fig tree, you know summer is near. So pretty simple illustration, not too hard to understand. You know, summer is right around the corner, right when you start to see the sprouting of the leaves. That's how it works. And so, in the same way, just as you see these things take place that I've prophesied about the coming destruction of the temple, know that it is near. It's at the door, just as I've said. Now, you'll notice that I didn't say he is near. At the door, like some of your translations have, like the CSB. But other transla- translations, like the NIV at this point, use the word it. And I think it is the accurate way to translate it here, as it's referencing the temple's destruction. But at the end of the day, interpreters had to make an interpretive call, as it can go both ways. So as I believe Jesus is referencing the events leading up to the destruction of the temple, I think "it." is the better translation here. And he's saying that as you witness these events, you know the temple's destruction, it's right at the door. You know it's about to happen. And I think this interpretive choice is further strengthened, as Jesus says, immediately after, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen take place. Now we've seen Jesus in Mark say this generation over and over again. And every time he does, he's talking about this generation of people in my day and age. These people around me in this generation. And so as he's saying this, he's saying that this generation of people will certainly see everything that I've just prophesied. It's going to to happen and you can bank it they're going to see everything that jesus has prophesied about the temple's destruction and they do so on this note heaven and earth may pass away but my words will not you can bank on everything that i've said unlike the fleeting nature of this universe universe my words will abide forever you can count on it you can trust my word So again, I think Jesus is giving us a picture of everything that he's just said. And then he transitions into a second picture of what he's just said about his second coming in verse 32. Now concerning that day or that hour, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son know, but only the father. So unlike the first event where the signs are predictable and you can easily see the coming destruction of the temple, unlike that event, the one in which Christ's return is not predictable at all. No one knows of his return except the Father. Though Jesus is fully God, in his humanity comes a full dependence on the Father to reveal to him all things. And in this case, the Son tells us he doesn't know his own return as the Father hasn't revealed it to him yet. And so as a result, because of this, it heightens the call on us as Jesus' disciples to watch and to be alert all the more. Why? Because we don't have any signs of his return. Therefore, be watchful all the time. And here's a picture so that you don't miss it. It's like a man, verse 34, that goes on a journey and leaves his house and gives authority to his servants and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert alert. Look towards Christ's coming. It's like Jesus has gone away for a long time, but one day he will return unexpectedly, just as he said. And what's the assurance that he will return? Everything that he said about the coming destruction of the temple. Which brings us to a very pressing question here this morning. Did everything that Jesus say about the temple's destruction come to pass? If it did, then we can trust that Jesus will indeed return for his own. But if not, then we cannot trust anything else he said in his life and ministry. So as we look back on this Jewish temple that Jesus prophesied of its destruction, we read historians to find out what happened. And we learn from Josephus of the horrific destruction of this temple in AD 70 by Titus. We find that the temple was first defiled in a Jewish civil war. Zealots of the Jewish faith were killing each other in the temple and shedding blood everywhere. The temple was desecrated. There was rampant murder and death before Rome came to put down the rebellion. And when Rome finally did come and put down this rebellion, things got far, far, far worse. Over one million Jews were slaughtered and killed. And over 100,000 Jews were taken as slaves. There were thousands upon thousands of crucifixions everywhere outside the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, there were so many crucifixions that the Romans ran out of wood. There were horrible atrocities that happened to women and their babies. Atrocities that we can't speak of. And the temple was completely torn down from top to bottom and the city leveled. The city was destroyed just as Jesus predicted. Surprisingly, or not surprisingly, it's recorded that there were no Christians found in Jerusalem, by the time Rome came in, they had listened to Jesus' words here. They saw the signs and the events, and they fled Jerusalem like there was no tomorrow. They listened to Jesus. So, coming back to the question, did everything happen to the temple just as Jesus prophesied? Yes, yes, it did. And so we can trust that he indeed will return. So as we come to a close here this morning, how do we respond to a text like this? A prophecy from Jesus. First, and most obviously, we must respond by trusting Jesus. What Jesus prophesied about the coming destruction of the temple came to pass. And so we can trust him. We can trust him also in another prophecy that he's made. He would be rejected by the leaders of Israel. He would suffer great mistreatment and then die for the sins of man on a cross. But he would also be raised again to new life. Jesus, by sacrificing his life for us and being raised, conquered death. And now because of his perfect sacrifice, we can trust that it is enough to grant us forgiveness of our sins. We can trust everything that he did has enough. So if you don't know Christ as Savior this morning, if you don't know him and his shed blood for you, know that Jesus did this ultimately to save you from yourself, to save you from what, all the wrongs you've committed against God, where the Jews would sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats, to try to atone for their sins. Only Jesus can atone for your sins. So look to him. If you do know Jesus Christ as Savior this morning, respond by relishing again that his word is faithful and true. He has won for you your righteousness and your freedom. And so you can trust him wholly and completely with your past, your present, and your future second, I want to encourage us this morning to respond by being alert and awake. You probably noticed that this is said by Jesus over and over and over again. Be alert and awake first to Jesus' second coming. Don't live as if this age will continue on for all eternity, for Jesus has assured us that he will come again. And we do not want to be found as those who are sleeping at the door. Instead, orient your life towards his return today. Think long and hard what it means for Jesus to return and then live purposeful lives towards that end. Eliminate that which is worthless and fleeting and add to your life that which will count for all eternity. Be alert. Second, be alert to false Saviors and Messiahs. Ever since Jesus, there have been false saviors and messiahs claiming to be able to give only that which Christ can give. So watch out for anyone or anything promising cheap counterfeits of only what Jesus can offer. Make no mistake, Jesus can only offer true salvation, true joy true peace. Only Jesus can satisfy our souls with himself. So don't fall into the trap thinking that anything outside of Christ can provide only what Jesus can. Children here this morning know that Jesus gives true life and salvation. Only he can fill you with true joy and peace as you live for him. This world will try to tell you that life is found outside of Jesus. It's found in these cheap toys or your friends or popularity. But only Jesus can truly give you what you need most. So trust him. Look to him. He is better than anyone or anything else in this world, even your parents. So trust him. Look to him and love him and don't be led astray. Last but not least, be alert and awake to the purpose of suffering. Sometimes we act and think of suffering as the worst imaginable thing that could ever happen to us. But the truth is that God often uses our suffering to spread the reality and the power of his gospel to others. So while we don't go out looking to suffer intentionally, when we do encounter it, know that suffering is actually an opportunity to display the glories and powers of the gospel. In our suffering, we have the opportunity to show the genuineness and power of the gospel in our life that transcends all worldly explanation. And for for God's people, he's been using their suffering to spread the glories of the gospel over and over again. As it's often been quoted, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. And as more Christians suffered and died for their faith, the preciousness of the gospel was realized by countless thousands and now countless millions. So I don't know what kind of suffering you're going through right now. I, I don't know what kind of suffering you will go through in the future. But know that it doesn't surprise us if we know what Jesus has said. And know that none of it is wasted as a Christian. God uses our, the suffering we go through to shine forth his power in our weakness. So as you face suffering, as Jesus said we would, do so as a Christian whose ultimate hope is in the Christ who suffered for you. He suffered a terrible death on a cross, and through it he brought life and redemption to us. So let us model his likeness as we look to our suffering Messiah's example.